You're listening to The Wake Up Reads with Alex Svetsky, the show where I read the best articles, excerpts, and essays from the world of Bitcoin, philosophy, and contrarian thinking. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to read number four. As promised last week, this week we're going to go through Isaiah's job, which was the original inspiration behind the Remnant series, which, if you guys know my story, was inspired by Francis Puglio. He's and he was obviously inspired by this article in the first place. Uh, it was written back in the 1930s by an Albert J. Nock, and it's said to have inspired everyone from Ayn Rand to Murray Rothbard and to all, all the people that we kind of view as early day heroes in the Austrian movement or in the in the libertarian movement and, and I guess in that sense modern modern day renaissance people so before I get into the read as usual a little reminder to jump on fountain and download the app and start listening to us there let's get off spotify let's get off apple music let's get off youtube let's get off all of these platforms and let's move towards podcasting 2.0 let's move towards value for value you can find the wake up podcast on there if you're not sure how to find it where to find it wherever you are listening to this jump into the show notes and you'll be able to find the link there to the actual show itself inside fountain and i believe i'll also link the episode as well the second announcement is by the time you're listening to this uncommunist manifesto should be out obviously pre-record these surprise surprise so uncommunist.com if you haven't been on there yet whack your email in you'll get some free stuff and if by some chance it's actually not on amazon yet then you will be notified when it does go on amazon and i believe for the first 12 or 24 hours we're going to discount it heavily on kindle so you can jump in get yourself a copy if you've not yet got a copy from the kickstarter campaign that we did a couple months ago that's all I've got for announcements. So without further ado, let's move into reading Isaiah's job. I, I will say really quickly that the English in this uh, piece is obviously a little bit more complicated. It's written in the 30s, as I mentioned. So so good luck to me. Of course, I pick something super difficult to read four episodes in. <sighs> anyway, Isaiah's job. This essay first appeared in the Atlantic Monthly in 1936. It's been republished on Mises.org on the 21st of June 2008, which is where I'm reading it from. I will place a link in the show notes to the article there. One quick note, actually, before we begin here is the way this is written is by Albert actually expressing almost a story. So keep that in mind as I'm reading through this. And so we begin. Isaiah's job. One evening, last autumn, I sat long hours with a European acquaintance while he expounded a political economic doctrine which seemed sound as a nut and in which I could find no defect. At the end, he said with great earnestness, I have a mission to the masses. I feel that I am called to get to the ear of the people. I shall devote the rest of my life to spreading my doctrine far and wide among the population. What do you think? An embarrassing question in any case, and doubly so under the circumstances, because my acquaintance is a very learned man, one of the three or four really first-class minds that Europe produced in his generation. And naturally, I, as one of the unlearned, was inclined to regard his lightest word with reverence amounting to awe. Still, I reflected, even the greatest mind cannot possibly know everything, and I was pretty sure he had not had my opportunities for observing the masses of mankind, and that therefore I probably knew them better than he did. So I must encourage to say that he had no such mission and would do well to get the idea out of his head at once. He would find that the masses would not care two pins for his doctrine and still less for himself, since in such circumstances, the popular favorite is generally some Barabbas. I even went so far as to say he's a Jew, that his ideas seemed to show that he was not very well up on his own native literature. He smiled at my jest and asked what I meant by it, and I referred him to the story of the prophet Isaiah. 
It occurred to me that this story is much worth recalling just now, when so many wise men and soothsayers appear to be burdened with a message to the masses. Dr. Townsend has a message, Father Colfin has a message, Mr. Upton Sinclair, Mr. Lipman, Mr. Chase, and the planned economy brethren, Mr. Tugwell, and the New Dealers, Mr. Smith, and Liberty Leaguers, the list is endless. I cannot remember a time when so many Energumans were so variously proclaiming the word to the multitude and telling them what they must do to be saved. This being so, it occurred to me, as I say, that the story of Isaiah may have something in it to steady and compose the human spirit until this tyranny of windiness is overpassed. I shall paraphrase the story in our common speech, since it has to be pieced out from various sources. And inasmuch as respectable scholars have thought fit to put out a whole new version of the Bible in the American vernacular, I shall take shelter behind them, if need be, against the charge of dealing irreverently with the sacred scriptures. The prophet's career began at the end of King Uzziah's reign since about 740 BC. This reign was uncommonly long, almost half a century, and apparently prosperous. It was one of those prosperous reigns, however, like the reign of Marcus Aurelius at Rome, or the administration of Eubulus at Athens, or of Mr. Coolidge at Washington, where at the end of the prosperity, suddenly peters out and things go by the board with a resounding crash. In the year of Isaiah's death, the Lord commissioned the prophet to go out and warn the people of the wrath to come. Tell them what a worthless lot they are, he said. Tell them what is wrong and why and what is going to happen unless they have a change of heart and straighten up. Don't mince matters. Make it clear that they are positively down to their last chance. Give it to them good and strong and keep on giving to them, giving it to them. I suppose perhaps I ought to tell you, he added, that it won't do any good. The official class and then their intelligentsia will turn up their noses at you and the masses will not even listen. They will all keep on in their own ways until they carry everything down to destruction and you will probably be lucky if you get out with your life. Isaiah had been very willing to take on the job. In fact, he had asked for it, but the prospect put a new face on the situation. It raised the obvious question, why, if all that was so, if, you, if the enterprise were to be a failure from the start, was there any sense in starting it? Ah, the Lord said, you do not get the point. There is a remnant there that you know nothing about. They are obscure, unorganized, inarticulate, each one rubbing along as best as they can. They need to be encouraged and braced up because when everything else has gone completely to the dogs, they are the ones who will come back and build up a new society. And meanwhile, your preaching will reassure them and keep them hanging on. Your job is to take care of the remnant, so be off now and set about it. Part 2. Apparently then, if the Lord's word is good for anything, I do not offer any opinion about that, the only element in Judean society that was particularly worth bothering about was the remnant. Isaiah seems finally to have got it through his head that this was the case, that nothing was to be expected from the masses, but that if anything substantial were ever to be done in Judea, the remnant would have to do it. This is a very striking and suggestive idea, but before going on to explore it, we need to be quite clear about our terms. What do we mean by the masses, and what by the remnant? As the word masses is commonly used, it suggests agglomerations of poor and underprivileged people, laboring people, proletarians, and it means nothing like that. It means simply the majority. The mass man is one who has neither the force of intellect to apprehend the principles issuing in what we know as the humane life, nor the force of character to adhere to those principles steadily and strictly as laws of conduct. And because such people make up the great and overwhelming majority of mankind, they are collectively called the masses. The line of differentiation between the masses and the remnant is set invariably by quality, not by circumstance. The remnant are those who, for, who by force of intellect are able to apprehend these principles and by force of character are able to measurably cleave to them. The masses are those who are unable to do either. The picture which Isaiah presents of the Judean masses is most unfavorable. In his view, the mass man, be he high or be he lowly, 
rich or poorer, prince or pauper, gets off very badly. He appears not only weak-minded and weak-willed, but as by consequence, knavish, arrogant, grasping, dissipated, unprincipled, and unscrupulous. The masked woman also gets off badly, as sharing all the masked man's untoward qualities and contributing a few of her own in the way of vanity and laziness, extravagance, and foible. The list of luxury products that she patronizes is interesting. It calls to mind the women's page of a Sunday newspaper in 1928, or the display set forth by one of our professedly smart periodicals. In another place, Zay even recalls the affectations that we used to know by the name Flappergate and the debutante slouch. It may be fair to discount Isaiah's vivacity a little for prophetic fervor, after all, since his real job was not to convert the masses, but to brace and reassure the remnant, he probably felt that he might lay it on indiscriminately and as thick as he liked. In fact, that he was expected to do so. But even so, the Judean mass man must have been a most objectionable individual, and the mass woman utterly odious. If the modern spirit, whatever that may be, is disinclined towards taking the Lord's word at its face value, as I hear is the case, we may observe that Isaiah's testimony to the character of the masses has strong collateral support from respectable genteel authority. Plato lived in the administration of Eubulus when Athens was at its peak of its jazz and paper era, and he speaks of the Athenian masses with all Isaiah's fervency, even comparing them to the herd of ravenous wild beasts. Curiously, too, he applies Isaiah's word remnant to the worthier portion of Athenian society. There is but a small remnant, he says, of those who possess a saving force of intellect and force of character. Too small, preciously as to Judea, to be of any avail against the ignorant and vicious preponderance of the masses. But Isaiah was a preacher and Plato a philosopher, and we tend to regard preachers and philosophers rather as passive observers of the drama of life than as active participants. Hence, in a matter of this kind, their judgment might be suspected of being a little uncompromising, a little acrid, or as the French say, sanguineux. We may therefore bring forward another witness who was preeminently a man of affairs and whose judgment cannot lie under this suspicion. Marcus Aurelius was ruler of the greatest empires, and in that capacity, he not only had the Roman mass man under observation, but he had him on his hands 24 hours a day for 18 years. What he did not know about him was not worth knowing, and what he thought of him is abundantly attested on almost every page of the little book of jottings which he scribbled offhand from day to day, and which he meant for no eyes but his own ever to see. This view of the masses is the one that we find prevailing at large among the ancient authorities whose writings have come down to us. In the 18th century, however, certain European philosophers spread the notion that the mass man in his natural state is not at all the kind of person that early authorities made him out to be, but on the contrary, that he is a worthy object of interest. His untowardness is the effect of environment, an effect for which society is somehow responsible. If only his environment permitted him to live according to his lights, he would undoubtedly show himself to be quite a fellow, and the best way to secure a more favorable environment for him would be to let him arrange it for himself. The French Revolution acted powerfully as a springboard for this idea, projecting its influence in all directions throughout Europe. On this side of the ocean, a whole new continent stood ready for a large-scale experiment with this theory. It afforded every conceivable resource whereby the masses might develop a civilization made in their own likeness and after their own image. There was no force of tradition to disturb them in their preponderance or to check them in thoroughgoing disparagement of the remnant. Immense natural wealth, unquestioned predominance, virtual isolation, freedom from external interference and the fear of it, and finally, a century and a half of time. Such are the advantages which the masked man has had in bringing forth a civilization which should set the earlier preachers and philosophers at naught in their belief that nothing substantial can be expected from the masses, but only from the remnant. His success is unimpressive. On the evidence so far presented, one must say, I think, that the masked man's conception of what life has to offer and his choice of what to ask from life seem now to be pretty well what they were in the times of Isaiah and Plato. And so too seem catastrophic social conflicts and convulsions in which his views of life and his demands on life involve him. 
I do not wish to dwell on this, however, but merely to observe that the monstrously inflated importance of the masses has apparently put all thought of a possible mission to the remnant out of the modern prophet's head. This is obviously quite as it should be, provided that the earlier preachers and philosophers were actually wrong, and that all final hope of the human race is actually centered on the masses. If, on the other hand, it should turn out that the Lord and Isaiah and Plato and Marcus Aurelius were right in their estimate of the relative social value of the masses and the remnant, the case is somewhat different. Moreover, since with everything in their favor the masses have so far given such an extremely discouraging account of themselves, it would seem that the question at issue between the two bodies of opinion might most profitably be reopened. Part 3. But without following up this suggestion, I wish only, as I said, to remark the fact that as things now stand, Isaiah's job seems rather to go begging. Everyone with a message nowadays is, like my venerable European friend eager to take it to the masses. His first, last and only thought is of mass acceptance and mass approval. His great care is to put his doctrine in such shape as will capture the masses' attention and interest. This attitude towards the masses is so exclusive, so devout, that one is reminded of the troglodytic monster described by Plato and the assiduous crowd at the entrance to its cave trying obsequiously to placate it and win its favor, trying to interpret its inarticulate noises, trying to find out what it wants, and eagerly offering it all sorts of things that they think might strike its fancy. The main trouble with all this is its reaction upon the mission itself. It necessitates an opportunist sophistication of one's doctrine, which profoundly alters its character and reduces it to a mere placebo. If, say, you are a preacher, you wish to attract as large a congregation as you can, which means an appeal to the masses. And this, in turn, means adapting the terms of your message to the order of intellect and the character that the masses exhibit. If you are an educator, say with a college on your hands, you wish to get as many students as possible, and you whittle down your requirements accordingly. If a writer, you aim at getting many readers. If a publisher, many purchases. If a philosopher, many disciplines. If a reformer, many converts. If a musician, many auditors, and so on. But as we see on all sides, in the realization of these several desires, the prophetic message is so heavily adulted with trivialities in every instance that its effect on the masses is merely to harden them in their sins. Meanwhile, the remnant, aware of this adulteration and of the desires that prompt it, turn their backs on the prophet and will have nothing to do with him or his message. Isaiah, on the other hand, worked under no such disabilities. He preached to the masses only in the sense that he preached publicly. Anyone who liked might listen. Anyone who liked might pass by. He knew that the remnant would listen. And knowing also that nothing was to be expected of the masses under any circumstances, he made no specific appeal to them, did not accommodate his message to their measure in any way, and did not care two straws whether they heeded it or not. As a modern publisher might put it, he was not worrying about circulation or about advertising. Hence, with all such obsessions quite out of the way, he was in a position to do his level best without fear or favor and answerable only to his august boss. If a prophet were not too particular about making money out of his mission or getting a dubious sort of notoriety out of it, the foregoing considerations would lead one to say that serving the remnant looks like a good job, an assignment that you can really put your back into and do your best without thinking about results is a real job, whereas serving the masses is at best only half a job considering the inexorable conditions that the masses impose upon their servants. They ask you to give them what they want, they insist upon it, and will take nothing else. And following their whims, their rational changes of fancy, their hot and cold fits, is a tedious business to say nothing of the fact that what they want at any time makes very little call on one's resources of prophecy. The remnant, on the other hand, want only the best you have, whatever that may be. Give them that and they are satisfied. You have nothing more to worry about. The profit of the American masses must aim consciously at the lowest common denominator of intellect, taste, and character among 120 million people. And this is a distressing task. The profit of the remnant, 
on the contrary, is in the enviable position of Papa Hayden in the household of Prince Esterhazy. All Hayden had to do was keep forking out the best music he knew how to produce, knowing it would be understood and appreciated by those for whom he produced it, and caring not a button what anyone else thought of it. And that makes a good job. In a sense, nevertheless, as I have said, it is not a rewarding job. If you can touch the fancy of the masses and have the sagacity to always keep one jump ahead of their vagaries and vacillations, you can get good returns in money from serving the masses, and good returns also in a mouth-to-ear type of notoriety. Digito monstrari et decir hisest. We all know innumerable politicians, journalists, dramatists, novelists, and the like, who have done extremely well by themselves in these ways. Taking care of the remnant, on the contrary, holds little promise of any such rewards. A profit of the remnant will not grow purse-proud on the financial returns of their work, nor is it likely that it will get any great renown out of it. Isaiah's case was exceptional to the second rule, and there are others, but not many. It may be thought, then, that while taking care of the remnant is no doubt a good job, it is not an especially interesting job, because it is, as a rule, so poorly paid. I have my doubts about this. There are other compensations to be got out of a job besides money and notoriety, and some of them seem substantial enough to be attractive. Many jobs which do not pay well are yet profoundly interesting, as, for instance, the job of a research student in the sciences is said to be, and the job of looking after the remnant seems to me, as I have surveyed it for many years from my seat in the grandstand, to be as interesting as any that can be found in the world. 4. What chiefly makes it so, I think, is that in any given society the remnant are always so largely an unknown quantity. You do not know, and will never know, more than two things about them. You can be sure of those, dead sure, as our phrase is, but you will never be able to make even a respectable guess at anything else. You do not know, and will never know, who the remnant are, nor what they are doing or will do. Two things you do know, and no more. First, that they exist. Second, that they will find you. Except for these two certainties, working for the remnant means working in an impenetrable darkness. And this, I should say, is just the condition calculated most effectively to pike the interest of any prophet who is properly gifted with the imagination, insight, and intellectual curiosity necessary to a successful pursuit of his trade. The fascination and the despair of the historian as he looks back upon Isaiah's Jewry, upon Plato's Athens, or upon Rome of the Antonines, is the hope of discovering and laying bare the substratum of right thinking and well-doing, which he knows must have existed somewhere in those societies, because no kind of collective life can possibly go on without it. He finds tantalizing intimations of it here and there in many places, as in the Greek anthology, in the scrapbook of Aulus Gellius, in the poems of Asonius, and in the brief and touching tribute Bene Merenti, bestowed upon the unknown occupants of Roman tombs. But there are, these are vague and fragmentary. They lead him nowhere in his search for some kind of measure on this substratum, but merely testify to what he already knew a priori, that the substratum did somewhere exist. Where it was, how substantial it was, what its power of self-assertion and resistance was, all of this they tell him nothing. Similarly, when the historian of 2,000 years hence, or 200 years, looks over the available testimony to the quality of our civilization and tries to get any kind of clear, competent evidence concerning the substratum of right thinking and well-doing which he knows must have been there, he will have a devil of a time finding it. When he has assembled all he can and has made even a minimum allowance for speciousness, vagueness, and confusion of motive, he will sadly acknowledge that his net result is simply nothing. A remnant will hear building a substratum like coral insects, so much he knows, but he, he will find nothing to put him on the track of who and where and how many they were and what their work was like. Concerning all this, too, the prophet of the present knows precisely as much and as little as the historian of the future. And that, I repeat, is what makes his job seem to me so profoundly interesting. 
One of the most suggestive episodes recounted in the Bible is that of a prophet's attempt, the only attempt of the kind on the record, I believe, to count up the remnant. Elijah had fled from persecution into the desert, where the Lord presently overhauled him and asked what he was doing so far away from his job. He said that he was running away, not because he was a coward, but because all the remnant had been killed off except himself. He had got away only by the skin of his teeth, and he being now all the remnant there was, if he were killed, the true faith would go flat. The Lord replied that he need not worry about that, for even without him, the true faith could probably manage to squeeze along somehow if it had to. The Lord quotes, As for your figures on the remnant, he said, I don't mind telling you that there are 7,000 of them back there in Israel, whom it seems you have not heard of, but you may take my word for it that there they are. End quote. At that time, probably the population of Israel could not run to much more than a million or so, and a remnant of 7,000 out of a million is a highly encouraging percentage for any prophet. With 7,000 of the boys on his side, there was no great reason for Elijah to feel lonesome, and incidentally, that would be something for the modern prophet of the remnant to think of when he has a touch of the blues. But the main point is that if Elijah the prophet could not make a closer guess on the number of the remnant than he had made when he missed it by 7,000, anyone else who tackled the problem would only waste his time. The other certainty which the prophet of the remnant may always have is that the remnant will find him. He may rely on that with absolute assurance. They will find him without his doing anything about it. In fact, if he tries to do anything about it, he is pretty sure to put them off. He does not need to advertise for them, nor resort to any schemes of publicity to get their attention. If he is a preacher or a public speaker, for example, he may be quite indifferent to going on show at receptions, getting his picture printed in the newspapers, or furnishing autobiographical material for publication on the side of human interest. If a writer, he need not make a point of attending any pink teas, autographing books at wholesale, nor entering to any specious Freemasonry with reviewers. All this and much more of the same order lies in the regular and necessary routine laid down for the profit of the masses. It is, and must be, part of the great general technique of getting the mass man's ear, or as our vigorous and excellent publicist Mr. H.L. Mencken puts it, the technique of boob pumping. The profit of the remnant is not bound to this technique. He may be quite sure that the remnant will make their own way to out to him without any adventitious aids. And not only so, but if they find him employing any such aids, as I said, it is ten to one that they will smell a rat in them and will shear off. The certainty that the remnant will find him, however, leads the prophet as much in the dark as ever, as helpless as ever in the matter of putting any estimate of any kind upon the remnant. For, as it appears in this case of Elijah, he remains ignorant of who they are that have found him, or where they are, or how many. They did not write in and tell him about it, half of the manner of those who admire the vedettes of Hollywood, nor yet do they seek him out and attach themselves to his person. They are not that kind. They take his message much as drivers take the directions on a roadside signboard. That is, with very little thought about the signboard, beyond being gratefully glad that it happened to be there, but with every thought about the directions. This impersonal attitude of the remnant wonderfully enhances the interest of the imaginative prophet's job. Once in a while, just about often enough to keep his intellectual curiosity in good working order, he will quite accidentally come upon some distinct reflection of his own message in an unsuspected quarter. This enables him to entertain himself in his leisure moments with agreeable speculations about the course his message may have taken in reaching that particular quarter and about what came of it after it got there. Most interesting of all are those instances, if one could only run them down, but one may always speculate about them, where the recipient himself no longer knows where, nor when, nor from whom he got the message, or even where, as sometimes happens, he has forgotten that he got it anywhere and imagines that it is all a self-sprung idea of his own. Such instances, as these are probably not infrequent, for without 
presuming to enroll ourselves among the remnant, we can all no doubt remember having found ourselves suddenly under the influence of an idea, the source of which we cannot possibly identify. It came to us afterward, as we say. That is, we are aware of it only after it is, has shot up full-grown in our minds, leaving us quite ignorant of how and when and by what agency it was planted there and left to germinate. It seems highly probable that the prophet's message often takes some such course with the remnant. If, for example, you are a writer or a speaker or a preacher, you put forth an idea which lodges in the Umbenweisten of a casual member of the remnant and sticks fast there. Quick note here, I most probably mispronounced the shit out of that word, but it's hard and I ain't going to try it again. Moving along. For some time it is inert, then it begins to fret and fester until presently it invades the man's conscious mind and, as one might say, corrupts it. Meanwhile, he has quite forgotten how he came by the idea in the first instance, and even perhaps thinks he has invented it. And in those circumstances, the most interesting thing of all is that you never know what the pressure of that idea will make him do. For these reasons, it appears to me that Isaiah's job is not only good, but also extremely interesting, and especially so at the present time when nobody is doing it. If I were young and had the notion of embarking in the prophetical line, I would certainly take up this branch of the business, and therefore I have no hesitation about recommending it as a career for anyone in that position. It offers an open field with no competition. Our civilization so completely neglects and disallows the remnant that anyone going in with a single eye to their service might pretty well count on getting all the trade there is. Even assuming that there is some social salvage to be screened out of the masses, even assuming that the testimony of history to their social value is a little too sweeping, that it depresses hopelessness a little too far, one must yet perceive, I think, that the masses have profits enough and to spare. Even admitting that in the teeth of history, that hope of the human race may not be quite exclusively centered in the remnant, one must perceive that they have social value enough to entitle them to some measure of prophetic encouragement and consolation, and that our civilization allows them none whatever. Every prophetic voice is addressed to the masses, and to them alone. The voice of the pulpit, the voice of education, the voice of politics, of literature, drama, journalism. All these are directed toward the masses exclusively, and they marshal the masses in the way that they are going. One might suggest, therefore, that aspiring prophetical talent may well turn to another field. Sat patria primacio datum. Whatever obligation of the kind may be due the masses is already monstrously overpaid. So long as the masses are taking up the tabernacle of Moloch and Tune, their images, and following the star of their god, Bunkum, they will have no lack of prophets to point the way that leadeth to the more abundant life. And hence a few of those who feel the prophetic afflatus might do better to apply themselves to serving the remnant. It is a good job, an interesting job, much more interesting than serving the masses, and moreover, it is the only job in our whole civilization, as far as I know, that offers a virgin field. Albert J. Nock was an influential American libertarian author, educational theorist, and social critic of the early and middle 20th century. He was born on October 13th, 1870, and died on August the 19th, 1945. And it says here, apparently, Murray Rothbard was deeply influenced by him, and so was a whole generation of free market thinkers of the 50s, which is kind of what I alluded to in the beginning. Thank you so much for listening to this. This was definitely one of the harder reads, or probably, I mean, obviously the hardest read so far, because number one, I didn't write it. But number two, the the language is... um is of a different era and, and a, a much better, more sophisticated English, in fact. And I guess if it uh, it showed me anything is that I think we all need a whole lot more practice in uh, reading, particularly reading out aloud. It's very different than reading uh, inside your mind. Uh, 
So thank you again. Let's do a quick review of a few of the elements of this piece because, I mean, just reading it again now, it's been it's been almost a year since I first read it the last time, maybe just just under a year actually. And man, it was hard hitting. There's there's some sections in there in each of the four or five sections I think that there is in total that um that are just so 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 beautiful. So so let's jump in, do a Svetsky's take, and explore some of these things. Part one of the essay obviously sets the stage, and the part that I want to drill into is where where the Lord commissions the prophet uh, to go back to the city uh, after the death of Uzziah. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. There's a few words during this whole bloody essay that are really hard to pronounce. Um, he says to go back and not to mince words, to tell them that they're worthless, that if they keep doing what they're doing, everything is going to burn to the ground. But then he also says uh, it won't do any good. The official class and their intelligentsia will turn up their noses at you and the masses will not even listen. They will all keep on their own ways until they carry everything down to destruction and you will probably be lucky if you get out with your life. And then obviously the the, the thing that follows is, well, if the enterprise is going to be a failure from the start, you know, what 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 is the point in even going ahead? And and this is where the the piece on the remnant first sort of gets introduced, is that the Lord says, you know, you do not get the point. There is a remnant there that you know nothing about. They're obscure, unorganized, um, and they're and they're sort of out there. They need to be encouraged. They need to be braced up, um, because once everything has gone completely to the, to the dogs, they're the ones who will come back and build up a new society. And your job as the prophet of the remnant is to reassure them and keep them hanging on. And and that's I mean. For me, you know, when I read that and when I started thinking about, you know, when people talk about mass adoption and, you know, Bitcoin and how it needs to be, you know, we need mass adoption to succeed. And I mean, this this was one of those profound essays that really sharpened my thinking on the idea of like, do we do we really need that? I mean, first of all, the answer is no, because most of those people are not going to listen anyway. They're not going to listen until they've either wiped themselves out in the first place or the the you know Bitcoin kind of becomes the new standard anyway, so it's a default. It, so so in that case it's not even a choice. They didn't listen. They just kind of walked into it in the same way as they would have walked into a gulag. And I mean, I, I love the opening there because he, you know, obviously he comes out strong and he just makes that point that it may seem hopeless on the surface. You know, you've got these lemmings that are walking into the lava and you're like telling them, no, do not walk into the lava. You're going to kill yourself. You're going to die. And it seems hopeless. But in amongst the lemmings, in, a, in amongst the society that is falling apart, there are the remnant. They exist. And they're the ones that you listening to this, me talking about this, you know, should we have, you know, as Albert mentions in the essay, should we have the, um, you know, almost the arrogance to, to say that we are a part of the remnant? Uh, they are the ones, we are the ones who need to find each other because that's who you want with you when shit hits the fan. And I mean... As I mentioned in my piece, it's like this is what the best movies in the world really made about. You know, you look at like the 300 analogy is perfect. You know, particularly when Leonidas meets with the Arcadians in the mountains on their way to to cut the um, the Persians off in the past. Uh, or obviously the famous scene with Morpheus and Neo in the Matrix. I mean, how many famous scenes? Like the, the two that are coming to mind is the one where it's like the splinter in your mind where he actually gives him the pills, the red pill, pill blue pill. But more importantly, I think, is the um, the construct piece of the uh, of the movie where, where they're walking through and Morpheus explains that, you know, the lawyers, teachers, carpenters, etc. They, they are all so dependent, so inured upon the system that they will fight to preserve it, even though it's fucking killing them. They won't realize so they'll take it all to the dogs. So our job is to unplug those that are willing to be unplugged. 
So that's kind of like the the first piece that I wanted to kind of touch on in there. The second part of the essay goes in and it opens up basically with we, we need to define the terms. We need to be quite clear about what is meant by the masses and what is meant by the remnant. And I mean, th- this definition is incredible. I, I love it. It says, the mass man is one who has neither the force of intellect to apprehend the principles. And you know, I think maybe a better word there is comprehend, at least in the kind of English we use these days. So force in uh, intellect to comprehend the principles issuing in what we know as the humane life, nor the force of character to adhere to the principles steadily and strictly as laws of conduct. And because such people make up the great and overwhelming majority of mankind, they are collectively called the masses. And then, you know, the, the differentiator that he that he places in there, he says the line of differentiation between the masses and the remnant is set invariably by quality, not by circumstance. The remnant are those who by force of intellect are able to comprehend these principles and by force of character are able, at least measurably, to cleave to them. The masses are those who are unable to do either. And this, I guess, I mean, this is... Those who know, know. And when you look around the world, particularly what we saw over the last couple of years with with the ridiculous lockdowns, with all the stupid rules, with all the lemmings running around suffocating themselves with, you know, face diapers and two face diapers and three face diapers and six face diapers and, you know, injecting themselves and being proud about it. And like, I mean, when when you look around and think of that, you basically see the kind of being, the kind of individual and what I've kind of called them at times, the, the subhuman their archetype is just beautifully beautifully described and explained here and then he he goes on to also describe how the mass man and the mass woman you know they they have these uh character traits like knavish arrogant grasping uh, lazy extravagant uh foible etc which you know kind of feel like uh you know they're the kind of people who will buy the shit in the Sunday newspaper in 1928, which is, it's funny how society seems to repeat in a sense. And obviously, you know, I'm not born in 1928, but there must have been something of that generation that is similar to what we're experiencing here, you know, a century later. Uh, and yeah, actually thinking about it, it didn't actually click that we're, we're basically a century since this essay was uh was first written but the the piece that i want to dig into next is how the you know he, he says that the the lord describes them this way uh this you know this masses and and prophets who are a little bit how can i say you know overly poetic or maybe overly dramatical might seem to maybe exaggerate the masses um, and, you know, give uh, too sweeping a definition of their character. So then he says, well, let's look at Plato. And what's interesting is Plato seems to echo the same thing. Uh, and in fact, apparently, I haven't been able to check this, but apparently Plato also uses the term remnant, um, who he says are the only ones who possess the a, a saving force of intellect and force of character uh, for you know for, for the subsistence of society so you know that that I found interesting and then he goes on to say that well Isaiah and Plato were both uh, you know were preacher and philosopher and they're both you know generally uh, viewed more as observers of the drama than than participants Um so as a result, you know, they might be a little bit uncompromising uh, or a little accurate in their, in their framing of who these masses were. So then he says, look, let's look at somebody who was in touch with them all the time and who actually scribbled notes about them that were f- originally those notes were for his own eyes. So, so th- this is like he's trying to use a primary 
reference point of somebody whose writing still exists today, who was effectively a member of the remnant, um, who was something, someone that we can aspire to, that would have had something honest to say about the masses of the time, and that was Marcus Aurelius. And the point that Albert's making here is that Marcus Aurelius's words echoed Plato's, echoed the Judeo-Christian, particularly the, you know, the Isaiah's job and the Elijah and, and the Lord's word, basically. And that seems to have been the prevailing narrative or the prevailing view of the masses uh, among the ancient authorities whose writings have come down to us. And then he says that basically in the 18th century, the European philosophers seem to have spread seem to have spread this new notion that the mass man uh, is an object worthy of interest and that his untowardness is the effect of environment and as a result like society is somehow responsible so so for me th- this is really interesting and this is obviously tied to kind of the maybe the Rousseauian types of philosophers that emerged uh, particularly in France right um, and I mean the the French Revolution as Albert also mentions in this essay was one of those catalysts which really brought us ideas such as socialism and democracy and uh, these kind of systems of governance for the so-called everyman and I know I mean to, to a degree this is going to sound you know elitist or whatever but what Albert is actually making a case for here and that these ancient authorities also made a case for is that there is a difference in people's nature and not everyone is the remnant like there is and genuinely these kind of like the people like and I, I used to say that you know there's three types of people there's those who make things happen there's those who watch things happen and there's those who wonder what the fuck happened and we, we all kind of know that and, and i mean again maybe i shouldn't say we all know that but probably the people listening to this know that and, and i'm trying to sound respectful here to the degree that I don't come off like some fucking eugenicist and like some, you know, as people have called me in the past, you know, Klaus Schwab spawn. But there, there really is these fucking lunatics out there that we've seen over the last couple of years who believe the dumbest shit, you know, that they are the NPC who believes in the current thing. And you can't sit here and tell me that that is purely by virtue of the fucking environment because we're all subject to different degrees to some weird-ass fucking environment. There, there must be the nature component of the nature-nurture equation that fundamentally makes us different. And it seems, it seems like there is, to a large degree, uh, a part of nature that is fundamental to being one of the remnant and that very few have it. So g- going through this piece for me and you know, going back and seeing how the idea of the masses as being that low form of character, low form of intellect, you know, whatever mixture that is, you know, low form of morality, let's call it, low form of quality, if we're going to use, you know, Persick's type of uh, framing, that seems to have been an idea that has passed through history that we have tried to do away with and I think, at least from what I understand about Nietzsche's work, Nietzsche warned us of this, that the age of the masses is upon us and it's going to unravel and destroy society until the remnant rise up once again. Uh, and I guess the pressure of the dismantling of society during this cycle will be such that the the emergent remnant are going to be that much stronger and that much more important. And this this obviously aligns with what I've written in the past, particularly in that uh, five-piece series about democracy, where I close it off with the, the age of meritocracy and what the world might look like on a Bitcoin standard. And, I mean, if only people like Albert Nock lived for... Um, you know, lived in modern times and were able to see 
what Bitcoin is going to actually bring forth once again. I think they would have been um I think they would have been impressed, inspired, and thankful. I know I am, not only with respect to Bitcoin, but then also being able to stand on the shoulders of giants like Albert and reading his work a hundred years later and thinking that that time has finally come. This is also why I want to do a whole lot of reading on Nietzsche and do some stuff there. But anyway, mo moving on to the, the third section. So there was a part in there that um, he mentions. Uh, yeah, so, so basically the third part is about the dilution of the message. So if you want to uh, appeal to the masses, you need to, what, what he calls... Uh, it, necessitate, it necessitates an opportunist sophistication of one's doctrine, which profoundly alters its character and reduces it to mere placebo. So basically, if you want to attract large congregations and you want to appeal to the masses, you've actually got to dilute your message. You've got to transform the message in such a way that it appeals to the lowest common denominator, because that is effectively what the masses is. And in doing so, it says, you know, the prophetic message is so heavily adulterated with trivialities in every instance that is that its effect on the masses is merely to harden them in their sins. Uh, and at the same time, the remnant aware of this adulteration and of the desires that prompt it turn their backs on the prophet and want to have nothing to do with him or his message. So basically, by doing so, you 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 extend the the sin of the masses, basically, you placate them and you keep them walking towards the lava, which means you're doing the immoral thing, like you're doing the wrong thing, number one. And number two is the people who you want to have in your corner, they hear it and they're like, well, fuck you, I'm out of here. So, so for me, this was, again, one of the most profound points, particularly when I was inspired to write the first piece, The Remnant. And the masses, and and this was one of those pieces that really was was a sharp, I guess, a dagger for me that obviously triggered a bunch of other people. Which is, if you want to go far, wide, and broad, uh, you've got to lower the, um, you've got to make your instrument a hell of a lot more blunt. If you you know if you really want to impact the right people and you want to impact them deeply. To impact the remnant, you need to keep it sharp, and by definition, that is not going to appeal to everyone. And I mean, that's echoed in this whole idea of, you know, you do you want to be someone that kind of appeals to everyone, or do you want to have like some polarity in what you discuss and describe? And you know, you look at people like Lex Friedman; he's a, he's a great example. Like the guy's too much of a fucking pussy to take a stand on anything. So he'll just fence sit for his entire fucking life, like some. Like literal pussy. I can't think of a fucking better description for him. And in he he's one of those people who just wants to appeal to the masses. Like I, I do not find him fucking interesting. And particularly, you know, what he did recently with Saferdin's podcast, and he put the fucking warning on Saferdin's podcast, whereas doesn't put the warning when he fucking interviews a Charles Hoskinson. Like, get the fuck out of here, man. So anyway, moving along. Um he talks about, I guess, then he gets into the, the whole idea of the the value of the job. So he says that if you want to be a prophet of the masses, there's notoriety and there's money to be made because you're appealing to a lot, you know, high numbers. Then he says that, hey, on the surface, it might not look like there is a great, uh, there is a great benefit to undertaking the job of the remnant because it's not going to make a hell of a lot of money and it's not going to bring you a lot of broad notoriety or, you know, having many people like know you for it, right? So I guess notoriety is the right word there. And he then says, though, it, it may not pay well, but there are other benefits that, you know, doing this kind of this kind of, I guess, unseen job, for, for lack of a better term here, there are other benefits for it. And he uses the example of a, of a historian or, or even an archaeologist. Actually, does he use archaeologist? I can't remember. But more, more like a historian or someone like who, 
you know, the 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 prophet of the remnant needs to be someone who likes to plant seeds, who likes to speak the truth, and who wants to see their message kind of flourish in a way that is not overt but almost covert. And that that to me is a, is an interesting take. To me, what he's trying to say basically is that the unknown, like the the job of the remnant or the prophet of the remnant is to venture into the unknown and that reward for the unknown is man I'm, I'm really I'm really not explaining this properly my brain seems to be fried today but the what you get from going into the unknown I guess this is where maybe the my the term of an archaeologist popped into my mind though is you get the you get the satisfaction of discovering something that no one else has right so so you are the contrarian you're the contrapliant you are the the 1% and being in that group doing something that is against the grain like answering Peter Thiel's question right what is something that you know to be true, that very few people agree with you on. Like that contrarian position is a reward in and of itself. Now, what's interesting, and I, I don't know if uh, Albert makes the case really strongly here, except towards the end, he makes the case that this is the one market not being served, right? Everybody is scrambling to serve the masses. So that means there is an open market here to serve the remnants. So, so in that sense, coupled with Teal's idea on, you know, the contrarian position being the one that makes you the most money. Maybe there is a case here for, particularly in a world where you've got paradigm shifts in the ability to deploy capital into something that fits the framework of a paradigmatic shift that is contrarian in nature. There is a lot of money to be made. But I guess it's a the notoriety comes after the fact, right? You you have to endure being that you know the the crazy person or whatever, and, and having no notoriety and no money until your thesis proves to be true, and 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 that, that's effectively what you know he describes here. So so then you know there's the whole part about you cannot know anything about the remnant except that they're out there and that they will find you. So so for me that's really interesting is. You know, we're always trying to think of a way to do outreach and to to tell people and to signal that hey you know we're out here come and find come and find me um, but you know I, I've always struggled with this myself particularly you know with the with the podcast and you know people always come to me and say how good the content is etc and you know why haven't more people heard about this and I guess to some degree, you know, I'm speaking a specific and a very precise message that may not be palatable to many people and to everybody. So, so, so that's probably one piece. But I guess as I think about this and as I absorb this content, it, it makes, I guess, makes me think about one thing, which is when I go looking for meaningful content, I mean, as soon as I see that the fucking shit is mainstream, I'm running the opposite direction. I will never read something on CNN or Bloomberg or anything like that, which is obviously designed for the masses. Like, I will go and seek that which is extraordinarily intriguing, super interesting, but obscure. Like, I'm interested in the more obscure because there's something there that the masses are not seeing. And this ties back into that position of being contrarian. I want to find contrarian truths. And that, I guess, is um, is A, where the, where the upside is. But B, it talks to this idea, which is the remnant are out there. So people like us are out there. And what we're looking for, the way we find that stuff is by listening for signal. And, and this was actually to touch on that point about signal is something that I really tried to bring up in the spaces when I originally was talking about the remnant when I wrote the first piece is that our job as Bitcoiners is to maintain signal. Like we are effectively nodes in the social network of Bitcoin. Yeah, sorry about that. My uh, fucking telegram 
someone decided to call me right in the middle of this damn recording and came through on the phone. I mean, on the on the computer. I hate that. <laughs> so as I was saying, nodes. We become the nodes on the social network or the social layer of Bitcoin. And so long as we maintain signal, people will find it. If we have this diffuse message and this message catered for the masses, catered for the lowest common denominator, the people who matter are going to ignore us. And the people who, I'm just sorry to fucking say, don't matter, they're the ones who are going to, in a flaky kind of manner, uh, you know, move like a mindless herd towards, you know, whoever seems to be the most appealing flavor of the day. So so that's that's not what we want. And I mean, Albert Nock just makes the most beautiful case in his essay for that. So this is the last thing I want to touch on from his piece. Maybe there's two things. I mean, one, he, you know, he talks about how what the prophet of the remnant does. So, so a person looking to signal truth, for lack of a better term, is, is he does so in a way that the people who are going to hear that truth, they may not even consciously be aware of hearing the truth specifically. And, you know, that like I mentioned this before, it's kind of like a planting of a seed that germinates in the mind. And then what's interesting, and this is one of the rewards that Albert Nock talks about uh, for the remnant, is that they will get to speculate upon how that seed actually germinated out in the wild um, and what path it took to kind of take root in a particular remnant's mind. And, and, and I guess the predicate here is that it'll only take root in the minds of those who matter. And it will not take root in the mindless because there's no mind there for, their, for it to take root in, but it's, it's, you know, it's a soil analogy, right? The soil needs to be such that the, the idea can take hold. And anyway, the last part is, is uh, not as I actually, Albert making the point that there's every corner you look on, there is a, a profit of the masses. So it's kind of like a crowded market that the ones who are being underserved, the remnant. So go and spend your time there because that is going to be more meaningful. It's going to bring you more rewards than just notoriety and money. And then I would argue in the modern day age, particularly as we're seeing this these kind of really profound paradigmatic shifts in the way society is oriented, I think there's incredible money to be made, but not by selling cheap wares, right? So not by making a bunch of uh, cheap plastic shit in China and selling it to, you know, blind consumerist Western Western countries. I mean by really focused, pointed positioning that answers the question, as I mentioned earlier, about Peter Thiel, which he says, you know, what is something that very few people agree with? What is a truth that very few people agree with you on? So, so and again, I mean, th- there's never been a better answer on the planet in history than, than Bitcoin for that question, I guess. And we're lucky enough to be alive during that that period. So this to me, of all the old works that I've ever read, is the most Bitcoin native. And at least for the phase that we're in now for Bitcoin, I could not think of a more apt, more powerful essay and idea that we can all rally around. So I want to thank you all once again for tuning into the Wake Up Reads. I'll have more for you next week. If you haven't yet, download Fountain, drop me a comment, drop me a boost there, and tell me about what you want me to read next. In fact, while I'm here, I'm actually going to do a quick shout out. Let me pull up my phone really quickly, because I did have an awesome boost from somebody actually just yesterday. When I say yesterday, I mean obviously yesterday with respect to when I'm reading this. And that person is 
BTC Moth. He dropped me 5,000 sets. You're a fucking legend. Thank you, brother. Really appreciate it. Keep that support coming. It gets shared amongst me and the boys helping me edit this. And that way we can continue focusing on meaningful work. This is, uh, we want to continue maintaining signal for the remnant. Also want to thank, I mean, user 87826696, blah, blah, blah. It's a, it's a long ass number, but looking at the image, I think I know who it is. Simon, thank you, buddy. Appreciate the, appreciate the boost. And Pablo is a shout out out there. I know you're always streaming some sats, man. So thank you for everything you do. That's a wrap for this show. I will see you on the next episode of the Wake Up Reads. Thank you for listening to the Wake Up Podcast. Find us on the Fountain app and send us a boost with a comment. I'll try and read them each week and send you a shout out. And remember to grab a copy of the Uncommunist Manifesto and join us in defeating the plague that is consuming our world. Yeah.